Hey, it's Antrice, and welcome to another episode of the Savvy Painter Podcast. I am so excited to share this episode. It's an imperfect episode on perfectionism. So I know that this is something that a lot of you struggle with. I get a lot of messages about this, and it is something that we discuss often in Growth Studio. So what I did was I had members of the Savvy Painter community answer a question. They recorded their answers to a question that I had asked them about how perfectionism shows up in their studio. And when it does, what do they do? What do they not do? And so I built this episode around the answers that Savvy Painter listeners submitted to me. So I had a really fun time doing this episode. I hope you enjoy it. But before we get started, I want to give you a heads up that we have new workshops available to you. So you can find those on SavvyPainter.com forward slash workshops. And I will be talking a little bit more about those later on. Also, this episode is sponsored by Growth Studio. Growth Studio is my ongoing membership program where we talk about all the things that happen in the studio. You have direct access to me and there are a few spots open for the one-on-one coaching with me. That's the only way that you get direct access to me on a weekly basis. Those spots are super limited. So if you are interested in that, then you can email us at podcast at savvypainter.com. Okay, on to this week's episode. This week, I'm going to talk about perfectionism. Some of us wear perfectionism like a badge of honor. We use it as an excuse when we're asking for a little bit extra. Often we think it means we do things at the highest quality or we are just striving for excellence. And you know, that's a pretty thought, but it's not true. Perfectionism is a moving target that you will never hit. It's driven by fear. It's driven by the fear of not being enough. An example is thinking that even the smallest learning curve suggests that you don't know enough and that you'll never measure up as an artist. Perfectionism is very judgmental. It's a way we think we can avoid any criticism at all when we think about what they will think, air quotes on the they. It prevents us from showing up as our authentic selves, which is the very thing that makes your art uniquely yours. So it's kind of crazy, right? By trying to be perfect, you end up not getting the thing you want the most. It's why we post our work on Instagram and then incessantly check how many likes it got, thinking that that's a measurement of the value of the work or the value of you as an artist. It's an expression of self-doubt. It's the thought that we can somehow create a world where we are beyond judgment, and that's completely impossible. Aristotle once said that the only way to avoid criticism is to say nothing, do nothing, and be nothing. I can't imagine a worse life. And then Brene Brown says that we struggle with perfectionism in the areas where we are most vulnerable to shame. I think both of those are pretty accurate. Perfectionism leads to this all or nothing thinking, which in my view is why a lot of people wear it as a badge of honor. Because in their mind, the only alternative to being perfect is being shoddy, 
It's being sloppy. It's being lazy, which as a perfectionist is completely unacceptable. (laughs) And I was definitely one of those. I was taught when I was little that if you're not going to do it right, why bother doing it at all? I either gave it 110% of my effort or I flat out wouldn't do it. That applied to my grades. It applied to scrubbing the bathtub. It applied to cleaning my room, which by the way, was why I never cleaned my room when I was a kid. (laughs) Because when I did something, I did it right. I did it as best as I could. And that willingness to go all in and the attention to detail served me really well in lots of circumstances. But it was also the anchor that held me down and it held me back because not everything deserves 110%. And sometimes just showing up is as important as going all in. Sometimes getting a B minus is perfectly acceptable. I don't need to get an A plus on scrubbing the bathtub. People with perfectionist tendencies often confuse it with excellence. And here's the thing. I know some of you have probably heard me talk about this before, but I think it bears repeating because this is crucial, especially with artists. I think we're so prone to perfectionist tendencies and to thinking that our art and everything that we do has to be perfect or it has no value. So excellence is internally motivated. It causes us to reach higher. It causes us to be the forever student and continually improve our painting practice from the starting point of worthiness. So your baseline in excellence is that you are worthy of being at the table. You are worthy of calling yourself an artist. You are worthy, period. And from there, you can improve. You could reach higher. You do it from a place of worthiness and abundance. Excellence is expansive. It fosters curiosity and it fosters wonder. Perfection, on the other hand, is externally motivated. Perfection is always asking, what will they think? How does my Instagram compare to other artists? Perfectionism starts and ends with I am not enough. When your starting point is I'm not enough, It encourages judgment of yourself. It encourages judgment of other people. It feels gossip and greed and judgmental comparisons. Ultimately, perfection causes you to contract, to shrink, because you don't want to take the risk that maybe you won't measure up to these perceived standards. So what happens is you end up not having your own back. It's not honoring who you are. Perfectionism is a pretty thought, but the result that we get from it is that we contract, we shrink, and we don't show up. So those are some of my thoughts on perfectionism. And this is another episode where I asked artists in our community how perfectionism shows up in their studios. And I also asked them, when perfectionism shows up, what do you do and what do you not do? when you are experiencing those perfectionist tendencies. So here's what one artist said about it. Hi, Antrice. This is Jenny from Colorado, and I have my MFA in painting and drawing from the Academy of Art University. I'm a representational painter who also doubles as a perfectionist, so this was a perfect question for me. I frequently have fear of what if it's not good enough? So that causes me to freeze. Or at the very least, if I don't freeze, the worry stops me from being my best. 
I get defeated easily. And I think this is because it's my second career. So I put a lot of pressure on myself. Lately, though, to combat this, I've decided to do some abstract paintings with cold wax medium and oils. In fact, today I start this for the first time. So I am excited about it. Keep it fresh. The key for me is to not stop creating, even if it's something new or small or departure from what is normal for me. It's my new ritual, and now I try to show up every day, no matter what. If your hand begins the process shortly after, your mind will follow. So thank you for asking this question, and I can't wait to hear everybody's response. I was watching a YouTube video of Oprah and Brene Brown having a conversation about perfectionism while I was writing this episode. And I really loved what Brene said. She said, when perfectionism is driving, shame is always riding shotgun and fear is the annoying backseat driver. I'll link to that show in the show notes of this episode, but Oprah and Brene have both been a big influence on my thinking. They're both crystal clear about who they are and what matters to them. I've talked about resistance and fear in past episodes, so I'm not going to go too deep into it here, except to acknowledge that resistance, perfectionism, and fear are completely intertwined. They're usually tangled up with each other. I wanted to share this with you that a couple of years ago, I heard an interview with the actor Jamie Foxx, and he shared what he teaches his daughter about fear. He continually asks her what's on the other side of fear. And she's been asked this so many times, she knows the answer. The answer is nothing, meaning there's nothing to be afraid of. There's nothing on the other side of the boogeyman. There's nothing. It's another way of saying that the only thing to fear is fear itself. And I don't know about you, but I've heard that so many times that it's almost become meaningless. And I think that's why what Jamie said to his daughter stuck with me. What stops us from showing up as our true authentic selves is just a thought in our heads. Because we're not in any physical danger. There is really nothing wrong. It's all in our head. And the anticipation of the thing that we're afraid of is far, far worse than the thing itself. My growth studio members, some of them are probably a little bit sick of hearing this, but this is what I always equate it to. So you know when you go to the dentist and the dentist might say like, okay, I'm going to give you a shot. Now, if you're like me, the second he says, I'm going to give you a shot, what happens is I start to get really hot Every muscle in my body tenses up. You know, you're sitting in those like, they're almost these lounge chairs and I can feel myself just pushing myself back into the chair. My shoulders are up past my ears. I'm just like, every muscle in my body is really tense. And there's that just heat rising up with me. So that's what I'm feeling. And I'm resisting something that's not even happening yet. So the dentist goes out, he does his thing, the assistant comes back in, she brings all the equipment out, she lays it on the table, and I'm that whole time, I am just like a ball of muscle, completely tense. And then the dentist comes back in and he gives me the shot and the shot itself is a millisecond. What I feel is the tiniest prick and then nothing. That's it. 
So I spent the entire time that since the moment he told me he was going to give me a shot until he comes back in, I'm a big hot mess. And that's what I mean when I say that the anticipation of the thing that we are afraid of is usually far, far worse than the thing itself. And the dentist example is usually just a few minutes when he leaves the room and goes and does his thing and then he comes back in. That can also happen though. Like if I know that I'm anticipating that I have to do something that I don't want to do or that I'm nervous about, that can be weeks ahead of time. And so for weeks ahead of time, I'm creating all of this negative emotion. I'm creating all this like physical being uncomfortable because my muscles are tense, my throat is clenched up or whatever it is that I'm that physical experience that I'm having that goes on until the thing happens. And usually when the thing happens, it's just a few minutes. And so that anticipation It's so much worse than the thing that I'm trying to avoid. And when I think about that, I always laugh. It's just so silly that I do that. But that's what our human mind does. That's part of what we do. So when we can manage our thoughts about fear and we can learn to allow ourselves to feel uncomfortable or nervous or anxious or afraid, they're really not that bad. And the better you get at managing your thoughts and allowing yourself to feel the feeling you're trying so hard to avoid, those fears lose their power. It is remarkable. It is amazing. I think this is a superpower. I'm just so in love with this. Seth Godin calls this dancing with fear. In Buddhism, it's inviting Mara for tea. There's a great story written by Tara Brock. That's who I first learned this from on her blog. And I will link to that in the show notes as well. But humor me for a second. I'm going to read you what Tara Brock says about having tea with Mara. Because if you're not familiar with this story, it's wonderful. So the night before his enlightenment, the Buddha fought a great battle with the demon god Mara who attacked him with everything he had. He attacked him with lust, greed, anger, doubt, etc. Having failed, Mara left into Saray on the morning of the Buddha's enlightenment. But it seems that Mara was only temporarily discouraged. Even after the Buddha had become deeply revered throughout India, Mara continued to make unexpected appearances. Instead of ignoring Mara or driving him away, though, the Buddha would calmly acknowledge his presence, saying, I see you, Mara. He would then invite him for tea and serve him as an honored guest. Mara would stay for a while and then go, but throughout, the Buddha remained free and undisturbed. When Mara visits us in the form of troubling emotions or fearful stories, we can say, hey, I see you, Mara. By accepting these experiences with the warmth of compassion, we can offer Mara tea rather than fearfully driving him away. Our habit of being a fair-weather friend to ourselves, of pushing away or ignoring whatever darkness we can, is deeply entrenched. But just as a relationship with a good friend is marked by understanding and compassion, we can learn to bring these same qualities to our own inner life. So that comes from Tara Brock's book, Radical Acceptance. And I will link to a blog post where she writes a little bit about inviting Mara to tea, but that is such a powerful concept. I wanted to share it with you because that's really what we need to do with the fears that come up, the fears that are behind the perfectionistic tendencies that we have in our studios. 
The shorter bumper sticker version is feel the fear and do it anyway. So whether you think about it Seth Godin style as dancing with fear or Tara Brock inviting Mara in for tea or the bumper sticker version, what they're all saying is this, you don't conquer your fears by denying them, fighting them, resisting them, or avoiding them. You sit with them. You dance with them. You just allow them to be. You'll be amazed at how much easier that is than fighting them. If you can get comfortable being uncomfortable, that is key. Your willingness to be uncomfortable is directly related to your capacity for success. So Ginny was absolutely right when she said this. The key for me is to not stop creating, even if it's something new or small or departure from what is normal for me. It's my new ritual, and now I try to show up every day, no matter what. If your hand begins the process shortly after, your mind will follow. So yes, Ginny, that is absolutely right. And if you want to make it a little bit easier on yourself, you can always invite Mara in for tea. You've got this. My name is Lisa, and I'm responding to this question of perfectionism, which is funny because this is my third recording of trying to get out what I mean to say about this. So what I want to say is the perfectionist voice in my head is the barrier that stops me from hearing the creative voice in my head. It stops me from experimenting. It keeps me from taking bold steps. It makes me think I can't get where I should be because I don't have the proper amount of time to devote to my art practice. Then it makes me spend way too much time on busy work. When I say to hell with it and let that voice go, it gives me the room to try new things, to give weight to something I would have sidelined otherwise. It allows me to work on the big journey. And if I can feel totally okay with making bad paintings, there is a payoff and a progress I wouldn't be able to make otherwise. If I'm unable to silence the perfectionist voice and get stuck, eventually I will come to my senses and realize it's a wave and it's time to forgive myself for getting stuck down at the bottom of that wave. And hopefully I can learn from that too. Lisa is definitely onto something here as she realized she can feel totally okay with making bad paintings. What I want to offer you today is that we always have a choice, even if we don't see it right away, even if it seems like that's just the way it is. Becoming aware of our thoughts when we're struggling in the studio is the first step to conquering those perfectionist tendencies. And because perfectionism can be a little bit hard to detect sometimes, being aware of what you're thinking when you feel afraid to experiment or afraid to take a bold step with your piece is absolutely key. Feeling nervous or afraid in the studio by itself isn't a problem. It's when we don't notice the fear and process it, when we don't invite Mara to tea, that it becomes a problem. That's when we abandon a painting or start procrastinating or forget our priorities. So here's Chanel sharing her experience with perfectionism. My name is Chanel, and I tend to, when it comes to perfectionism, I'll stop a painting if it's not quote-unquote perfect, if it doesn't look like I want it to look, or if the color is off. I will stop mid-painting and walk away from the painting and leave it alone. And in the past, I used to just never go back to it. But now to tackle that, when perfectionism comes up, I try and give myself some grace, walk away, and come renewed with more energy and more 
readiness to let go of any inhibitions I might have or any ideas I may have about how I want this painting to look and just allow myself to flow, you know, with however I feel my paintbrush should stroke the canvas. You know, that's how I'm tackling it. What I used to do is I used to never finish paintings. So what I'm starting not to do is actually I'm starting not to neglect my projects and paintings. Thank you so much for sharing yourself, Chanel. That is so great. So listen to what she just said. Chanel changed her thought about her painting. Before, Chanel would let her feeling of frustration stop her from finishing her painting. If the painting didn't look the way she wanted it to look or the color was off, she tended to abandon it. Her thoughts about the painting were, it's not quote unquote perfect. And this leads us to a very interesting phenomena that I've been studying for, gosh, several years now, but lately I am more and more obsessed with it because I've realized how incredibly powerful this is. I think the first time I heard this, I learned this from Tim Ferriss way back in the day when there were very few podcasts to listen to. And then when I dug into it, I realized that there is a ton and ton of research on it, and it's been around a long, long time. But when I learned this, a light bulb turned on in my head and I dove down the rabbit hole. So there's this thing called confirmation bias, which is the tendency to look for evidence which confirms or supports what we already believe. Our brains are really, really good at that. And you probably already know this, but Facebook is a great example of it. Facebook and other social media platforms use algorithms that analyze what you've clicked on, what you like, and then they just keep serving you more and more of that. So in a way, that's what your brain does as well. It's kind of like when you buy a new car and then you start seeing the same car everywhere. So what I've been learning is that when you can harness confirmation bias, you can use it to do amazing things, but it's a double-edged sword. So let's take another look at what Chanel has done with regards to perfectionism. Before, when she looked at her painting, she thought it's not quote unquote perfect. And then her brain, doing what all brains do, found all the reasons that she was right. And when she found all that evidence, of course, it makes sense, she would abandon the painting or set it aside. Of course, she didn't want to go back to it. It just makes perfect sense if that's what she was thinking, that this isn't right. But when she expected perfection from her painting and it didn't live up to it, she doesn't say this, but I'm guessing that it felt pretty crappy. I bet it felt maybe defeating. And if that's the way you're feeling about your painting, then of course, you're not going to want to go back to it. So that's the perfect example of how confirmation bias can work against you. When you're thinking negative thoughts about your painting, you will produce negative results. But then look what Chanel goes on to say. When her thoughts were different, she started thinking about letting go of her inhibitions on the canvas. She started thinking about giving herself grace and allowing herself to flow. And this is so powerful because when she changed her thoughts about painting, her experience also changed. Here's what I believe about painting, that painting has to come from a place of love. And you cannot create love when you're feeling hate. If you're trying to create a painting that shows your true authentic voice, 
It's next to impossible when you're constantly telling that voice that it doesn't know what it's talking about. When you're telling it that it's not good enough or that it will never amount to anything. It's like you're basically telling your voice to be quiet, to shut up, and your mind believes what you tell it. So if you're constantly telling that voice that it's not good enough, that it doesn't know what it's talking about, that you're telling yourself that your painting is crap or that you're a terrible artist, your brain will say, oh, got it, boss. I'll go find evidence for that. Ooh, look, I just found a hundred reasons why that's right. That's your brain at work. We all do it. When you find yourself thinking your painting has to be perfect, take a breath and find the thought that serves you best. Everything that happens in your studio, everything that happens on your canvas begins with a thought. And here's the most amazing and powerful thing. You get to choose what you think. Hi, my name's Beth. This whole idea of perfectionism is a hot button for me. It shows up for me as soon as I begin an oil painting with the underpainting. For some reason, I expect it to look marvelous from the very beginning as the brush hits the canvas, which is totally ridiculous, I know. But that's when it starts for me. And what I've learned to do, because so often I just erased canvases, painted over them in frustration. I've started to do some self-talk, telling myself over and over, this is only the beginning, stay with it. And when I find that I do that and walk away and look at it the next day, I find that things appear on the canvas that I couldn't see while it was wet. It is the brush strokes, the depth of the painting, what appears there is magic. And I know I am the creator of that, but it doesn't happen unless I allow myself to step back and walk away and look and really see what's happening. And the other thing is not comparing myself to other people, other artists. So often I would be doing a piece and then I'll rush to Pinterest or some other saving engine to look at other artists that I admire work and I automatically want to compare myself to them. And I know that no two brush strokes are alike. No two eye sets are alike of what we see and how we see it. And what I'm doing is creating something unique and I have to allow that uniqueness to come through. And that's what I do. That's what I do to get out of this whole perfectionism mode. I enjoy painting, and I wish I could say I did it every day. And from here forward, I'm going to be working on that. I've learned a lot from what you said, and I hope I get to hear your podcast. Thank you. So Beth, thank you for being part of this podcast episode and for being part of our community. You absolutely nailed it. Yes, you are the creator of the magic that happens on your canvas. You gave us the perfect example of what I just explained. So I want to break this down so all of you can hear it clearly. I learned this model from Brooke Castillo, and it's pretty amazing. So let's all imagine an artist named Beth in her studio painting. Okay, so we can all probably agree by what we're seeing that Beth is in her studio because 
We see painting supplies, an easel, and all sorts of physical objects that tell us that she is in an art studio. So we can all agree on that. And then she has a paintbrush in her hand and she's putting paint on a canvas. So we could all probably agree that Beth is in her studio painting. So that's the situation and it's judgment free. There's no drama. It's a completely neutral situation. Everybody listening to me right now, if they were to see that would agree, there would be nothing to dispute. So when Beth starts her painting though, she has a thought and that's when she has that thought. That's when she gives meaning to a completely neutral situation. And the thought that she has is this is going to be a marvelous painting from the very beginning. And it sounds like from what she described that what she was thinking was start to finish, this will be a marvelous painting. And if Beth is like most painters I know, or let's just get specific, if Beth is anything like me, there comes a point in the painting when it gets a little messy. I like to call it the messy middle. You haven't made all your decisions yet, and the painting is still unresolved. You're kind of past the excited lay-in part, and now you're having to make decisions. And often, when it's time to make decisions about our painting, we think that we don't know what to do. When we think that we don't know what to do, we might feel something like confusion or overwhelm or frustration. And then once we have those feelings, we go into an action. So we have a thought, which creates a feeling. And then from that feeling, we do something or we don't do something. Most of the time, thoughts like confusion, overwhelm, or frustration will lead us to procrastinate or maybe to set the painting aside or to quit. Now let's take the exact same situation, but with a different thought process. So same situation, we see Beth, she's in her studio painting, she's in the messy middle of her painting. But this time, she chooses a different thought. She chooses to think, this is only the beginning. Stay with it, stay with it. And when she thinks that thought, that this is only the beginning, stay with it, she creates a different feeling. Maybe that feeling is determined, maybe it's committed. But with this new feeling, she sees possibility and she paints her way through. Do you see the difference there? Our thoughts are so, so powerful. Beth gives us another glimpse of this in her observation about looking at other artists' work. So I'm going to replay just that little part of the clip so you can hear exactly what she said. So often I would be doing a piece and then I'll rush to Pinterest or some other saving engine to look at other artists that I admire work and I automatically want to compare myself to them. So let's take a look at what's going on here. Beth is looking at another artist's work. Now, I don't know what's in Beth's head. If I were able to talk to Beth, I would probably dig a little bit deeper to get a better understanding of what she's actually thinking. But for now, I'm going to explore a few possibilities to illustrate a point. And I'm going to use myself as an example, just so I don't put words into Beth's mouth that she didn't actually say. So let's take a look at this. Let's say actually that I'm looking at another artist's work, right? So maybe I'm in my studio and I'm painting and I think to myself, I don't know what to do right now. I'm going to look at some other artist's work. Maybe I'll get some inspiration there. So one possibility is 
when I'm looking at another artist's work is I could choose to have a judgmental thought about my work as compared to another artist's work. And then I could make that mean that I am inferior, right? I'm an inferior painting. That person paints better than I do, right? And once I do that, my mind will go straight to work to find all of the evidence that proves me right, that proves that I am not a good painter. When I look at that other artist's work, look what they do, here's what I do, and here's the long, long list of all the reasons why I don't measure up. And so when I look at another artist's work, and that's what I'm thinking, the feeling that I would get from that is if I make it mean that I'm not a good enough painter, if I see another artist's work and I think to myself, oh, they're so much better than I am, and I make that mean that I'm not good enough, then I might feel sort of dejected or I might feel disappointed in myself. Maybe I feel insecure if I think somebody's going to see my work, but let's go with disappointed. So I feel disappointed in myself when I think the thought that this other artist's work is so much better than I am, and I'm not as good a painter as they are. Another possibility, so same exact situation, but let's choose a different thought. So another possibility, another thought I could choose is I look at another artist's work, and I choose to have the thought that I am a much better painter than that person is. And maybe I feel arrogant about it, or maybe I feel like my work is superior to theirs. On the surface, maybe I'm being conceited, but what's the real harm? I've only just thought it. I haven't said anything. I haven't done anything. It's just the thought that went through my head. Here's the thing though. When I look at another artist's work to compare myself to them, even if I tell myself it's only to get a sense of where I'm at, it produces a negative result. If I look at another artist's work and I have the thought that they're better than I am, and I make that mean that I'm not good enough or I'm less than, I generate negative feelings about myself and about my work. Most likely, those negative feelings will lead to me painting less. And if I paint less, then I don't become a good artist. I don't improve. I don't grow as an artist. I don't learn skills that will make me a better painter. If I take that second example, if I compare my work to another artist and this time I have the thought that I'm better than they are and I start to feel arrogant or superior to them, then the consequence of that is I rob myself of the opportunity to notice how they resolved a challenging passage, let's say. Or I might miss a beautiful color combination that I would not have thought of myself. And additionally, while I'm so busy feeling superior, I'm not painting. When we use other people's work as a measuring stick for our own worth as an artist, we always come up short. The outcome in both cases is a closing down. It is a shrinking. I like to call it compare and despair. But As Beth seems to have discovered, this is what's amazing. When you look at another artist's work with wonder and with curiosity, you learn something. It sparks ideas. It inspires and opens us up. So Beth is absolutely right. We all have a different way of seeing and expressing ourselves. Beth's paintings are unique from mine and they're unique from yours. And that's an opportunity. Let's listen to another artist. Hi, my name's Debbie. Perfectionism, I have come to realize, shows up in everything I do. 
my art and painting. And I think I've come to realize is preventing me from moving forward. I would say maybe an excuse, even subconsciously, to stop what I'm doing because I look at it and it's not good enough. Other artists are better. This isn't going to work. The idea I have in my head is not going to actually come to fruition. I've only recently discovered your podcast and community and actually hearing the voices of other artists and things that you are saying has made me aware of the negative effects of perfection. And so now I'm starting to try and push through to tell myself that I'm just trying something out. I'm just going to keep painting and see what happens to try and even tell myself that this painting is just for the bin. I'm trying to work on that. The idea that I'm just painting or drawing for no reason other than the experience of drawing. That's the goal in my head. I haven't yet been able to do it, but thinking of that has enabled me at least to get up and start drawing and painting again, which in itself is a step in the right direction. Debbie, welcome to the podcast and thank you so much for sharing with us. Debbie is closer to beating perfectionism than she thinks. She realizes that perfectionism is preventing her from moving forward. Most people don't realize that. I know it took me a long time to give it up because I was one of those people that confused it with excellence. And because of that, I was blind to all of the ways that it was holding me back. Now that I see it, though, I can't unsee it. And I'm still weeding it out sometimes because perfectionism can be sneaky. Another reason Debbie is closer to beating perfectionism than she thinks is because she sees that these ideas are all in her head. What we tell ourselves about our work, our thoughts in our head. We know that because everyone has a different idea of perfection and because it's constantly morphing. It's a shape shifter. But here's the good news. We get to choose our thoughts. And since we get to choose whatever we want, whatever thought we want, why not choose the thought that moves you forward? Why not choose the thought that serve you? So here's some examples of thoughts, and I'm going to invite you to try them out. I'll never paint hands as well as that. I just don't get color. I wonder why they chose to include that. Maybe I should try something similar. I wonder how they got the hands so accurate. I think I'll practice drawing hands more. Ooh, how interesting. It looks like that green is glowing. I wonder how the other colors are affecting it. Of the thoughts that I just offered you, which ones serve you and your art best? Michelangelo drew much better than I do. I could use that thought to beat myself up, or I could use that thought to propel my work. It's my choice. I could pick either one. And since I see absolutely no upside to the negative thought, I'll take the one that helps move me forward. So think about those thoughts that I just offered you. If I came up to you and I had these thoughts and I presented them to you and I said, you can have any of these thoughts, which would you choose? Which of these thoughts would serve you and your art the most? Because you can choose. That's the thing that's so amazing and so powerful is you get to choose. When you become aware of the thoughts that are holding you back, thoughts like perfectionism, you can choose something different. Hello, my name is Carl. As far as perfectionism is concerned, it does show up in my painting because skill is definitely an attribute that I admire in other artists' work. 
and I mean all artists, be they musicians or sculptors or playwrights or actors. I think it is the universal attempt by all artists to achieve as close an approximation as it is possible to the original concept that you have in your mind. And as a painter, I'm trying as hard as I can to hit that mark. And I sort of think of the success of a piece as how close I can get to achieving that approximation. Of course, I have made duds in my eyes that others have found value in, or that later I might think of, you know, as having merit. It's not that play is not important. I think it is. I think it's very important. It's that once a skill is developed, it sort of becomes your power or your identity. So it does show up, I think, in my artwork. And I think that's okay that you make an attempt towards it. It's a goal that you probably never will reach, but it's just an attempt. So anyway, that's kind of how I work. Thank you. Bye-bye. I really like what Carl said here about developing the skill of painting. And in the same way that you can develop a painting skill by focusing on it and by practicing it and allowing it to infuse itself into your daily painting life, you can also develop the skill of managing your thoughts so that you can create the life and the studio life that you want. So I've got one more for you here. This is Richard. Richard is a member of our free Savvy Painter community. He is always in there ready to lend a hand. And here's what Richard had to say about how perfectionism shows up for him. Hi, I'm Richard. And for me, the antidote to perfectionism has been learning to embrace the accidents or mistakes that happen when I'm creating. Some of those accidents end up being the most interesting parts of a painting. In my artistic journey, I've evolved, air quotes there, from a purely realist figurative artist to working much more loosely and even straying into a lot of abstraction. Throughout this process, I've found that when you let things happen and adjust your expectations accordingly, you learn to appreciate the beauty and value of the unintended things that come to the surface of your work. I truly believe they have become what makes my work unique. And I really like what Richard and Carl had to say about this. When you give up perfectionism, you get so much more back. When you give up perfectionism, you become the type of person who has your own back. You become centered and you become sure of your artistic voice. As Richard discovered, you become more playful and you become more accepting of what happens on your canvas. It doesn't mean you become sloppy. It means that you start to find the play and the joy in your work. When you give up perfectionism, you aren't worried about what other people will think about your work. You simply get lost in creating it. And as Andy Warhol said, don't think about making art, just get it done. Let everyone else decide if it's good or bad, whether they love it or hate it. While they're deciding, make even more art. Don't make the mistake of hearing that and believing that it means that anything can be art and that there are no standards. I interpret what Warhol said as giving yourself permission to be and create as your authentic self. Now, I have no idea if that's what Warhol meant. What matters more to me, though, is the fact that we have absolutely no control over what other people think or say. None. We only have control over our own thoughts and our own actions. And since our thoughts tend to drive our actions, what we think matters. 
even if we don't say it out loud, even if it's in the privacy of our studio, even if, especially if, it's the things that we say to ourselves every day. And if our purpose here is to live a full life, which for us includes creating, drawing, and painting, then why would we give other people so much control over what we do in our studio? Because that's exactly what we do when we edit ourselves when we worry so much about whether the stroke is right or wrong, because someone, the anonymous someone, the anonymous they, might think we don't know enough about form or figure or color. Perfectionism gives these anonymous critics all of our power. And what I want for you so much is for you to take your power back. Perfectionism has no room for exploration. It has no room for play. It leaves no room for blazing new trails or discovering happy accidents. One of my clients, a member of Growth Studio, who I have the privilege of coaching one-on-one every week, said, wouldn't it be nice if we could just paint like we did when we were seven years old? Yeah, it would. How awesome would that be if every time you walked into your studio, you just get lost in the magic of the materials and you become mesmerized by the way the colors bleed into each other, by the thickness of the paint that you just laid down and how the edges of your last brush stroke did something amazing and unexpected. Perfectionism doesn't allow that to happen. So what I want to offer you today is this idea that you can be the master in your own studio, that perfectionism does not have to have a hold over you, that you get to decide what you think and your thoughts ultimately drive your action and your results. And if the results you get from being perfectionistic aren't helping you, then you can choose different thoughts. And from those thoughts, you'll get different results. So that's what I have for you today. Show notes for this episode are at SavvyPainter.com. And do you know we have a free online community for Savvy Painter listeners? That's just one of the benefits you get when you sign up for our email list. The thing that I hear most often from the Savvy Painter listeners is how great it is to know that you are not alone in your studio and now you can meet other artists who listen to the podcast, connect with them. I'm in there. Bren is in there. It is a fabulous place to be. I also want to let you know about a couple of workshops that we have coming up. This has been a long time coming. I am so excited about this. Lucy Callian is giving a four-day painting workshop called Logical Color Mixing, where she introduces the Munsell color theory to you. So if you've ever wanted to learn about the Munsell system, now's your chance. It is an exclusive four-day workshop with Lucy Callian. The workshop starts on December 7th, so sign up now. Coming up in January, I am super excited to be collaborating with Dean Fisher. Dean will be teaching a six-week workshop on the still life. Dean Fisher is one of the few artists that I have had multiple times on this podcast. All the details are on the website. You'll find it in the sidebar for this episode at SavvyPainter.com forward slash podcast. You can get all of the details there, but here's something you need to know now. This is super exciting. Dean is giving a special lecture as a bonus for early bird registers. So if you register for his course before December 5th, You'll be invited to an exclusive event where Dean will talk about his experiences painting with none other than Antonio Lopez Garcia. 
Dean had the amazing opportunity to study with Antonio Lopez Garcia in Madrid. And he also just happened upon Antonio Lopez Garcia as he was on the street painting. So Dean got to sit there and watch Antonio Lopez Garcia paint for about two and a half hours, I think he said. And he is going to give us all the details about that, about what he learned in the two separate times that he has studied with Antonio Lopez Garcia. So that is available only if you register for the workshop before December 5th. You can find all of the details for the workshop as well as a link to join at SavvyPainter.com. So I'm super excited about those two workshops that we have coming up, December and January. Lots of fun things happening here at Savvy Painter, so stay tuned for that. And I hope I see you in the Savvy Painter community. Until the next time, this is Anne Wood with the Savvy Painter Podcast. Have a wonderful week.